Turn to Romans chapter 11. I will be reading Romans 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Let's pray. Father, we cannot sing doxologies that are not flowing from whom you revealed yourself to be. That are not flowing from your actual workings in this world. And so I beg that we, your people, hunger to see you in the way you have revealed yourself. And particularly this morning in this very difficult text so that we will sing with Paul to you be all the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is week 29 in our series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. It is the second to the last week. Next week, I will be wrapping up this series. But in our journey through redemptive history, we see that in the New Testament, there are three new revelations that are unfolded that God reveals about what will be happening from the first coming of Jesus unto the second coming of Jesus. All three of those revelations are referred to as the mystery. The mystery and the mystery. The first mystery we have seen over the last few weeks. It is the mystery of the kingdom of God. Because the word mysterion in the Greek, it has to do with something that was just blurry, not seen, not expected. But then it's revealed to those for whom it is. And that's the mystery that gets unfolded in the New Testament. And the first was the kingdom of God. They fully expected the kingdom to come, but not the way it came. It came and penetrated this world in Christ's coming invisibly. It is here, it is present, it is now, and it's still not yet. It was a mystery. They never saw that the son of David, the king, would have two comings. First to suffer and die. To ascend after he rose. And in the future, one day, to return in glory. That was a mystery 
It's unveiled to us in the gospel in the New Testament. The second mystery spoken about in the New Testament is the mystery that non-Jews, Gentiles, remaining Gentiles, are inheriting the blessing promised to Abraham. Not just Jews, but non-Jews through Jesus together are becoming not two separate peoples, but one people. And Paul summarizes it in Ephesians 3 this way. When you read this that I write, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So that second mystery is that Jew and Gentile, together through Jesus Christ, are one body. They both have access to God the Father by the one Spirit. They are joint heirs, fellow members of the body of Christ. That's the second mystery unveiled in the New Testament. And then there's the third mystery, which I'm going to spend the rest of our time on this morning. And it is the mystery of the hardening of the heart of the Jews. Romans 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, Gentile Christians in Rome, I want you to understand this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And this means that the hardening of the heart toward the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has happened to the vast majority of the Jews since Jesus' first coming up until today. Now, that's what we're going to look at more in-depthly as Paul lays it out in three of the most important chapters in the history of literature. Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, I'm a pastor, and it's Sunday morning, and I know that the history of the church, not totally, I'm not the only one, but this is something you don't normally are supposed to do. But I hope most of my pastoral preaching ministry has essentially stood upon a paragraph that C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. And so, as mine, I will quote it, and then we'll go forward again. He writes, 
Everyone has warned me not to tell you what I'm going to tell you in this last book. They all say, the ordinary reader does not want theology. Give him plain, practical religion. Lewis goes on. I have rejected their advice. I do not think the ordinary reader or Christian is such a fool. Theology means the science of God. And I think any man who wants to think about God at all would like to have the clearest and the most accurate ideas about Him which are available. You are not children. Why should you be treated like children? And so, I don't want to fail. As I close this 30-week series next week, to do my best to hold nothing back, but to say and to preach and to teach and to unveil the whole counsel of God that He has given to us, and therefore it brings us to this great third mystery this morning, unveiled in Romans 9 through 11. But first, let's get the big contextual bird's eye view, over, overview, flying over the forest of Romans 9, 10, and 11. In the Old Testament, we have seen the prophecies about the Son of David coming, a kingdom, an eternal kingdom coming. And that king and that kingdom of God would mean, in the Old Testament, the conversion of Israel. And Jesus, the king, he comes. But as the deliverer, he must first suffer and die for sins. His first coming. And Jesus then commissioned his followers to preach the gospel, not just to Jews, but to the rest of the world. And so we open up the book of Acts in the early church and Peter and John and the Christians as a whole for months and months and months on end, if not for two years, are not getting it. The gospel, of course, is for the Jews. And then, Israel as a whole, in Jerusalem, and in Judea, in its leadership, and its people, rise up to smash this teaching about Jesus being the Messiah. Persecution comes about. It starts to scatter the Jewish Christians outside of Jerusalem and Judea, and the gospel spreads to Samaria, and eventually then to all the nations, the Gentiles. And that is not an accident. It's not an accident that you read throughout the book of Acts as Paul goes into every town and city as a missionary that he goes first to the synagogue, first to the Jews. And a remnant, small portion of them believe. And then he makes statements. Okay, now few of you believe, but you've had your chance, the vast majority of you, I'm turning to the Gentiles. It's not an accident. It's driven by guidance 
theology that he does it. And so what we see is that except for the remnant throughout the last 2,000 years, and who knows how long we have, the remnant, a small portion of Jews who will always be believing in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, except for the remnant, the Jews or Israel as a whole will remain in rebellion against the gospel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Paul writes in verse 7 of Romans 11, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Righteousness. It failed. The elect obtained it, meaning the chosen few of the Jews did obtain it, like Paul himself, but the rest were hardened. That's a passive voice verb, which means the rest of the Jews, the subject of the verb, did not do the verb. The verb was done to them. They were, by another agency, hardened. This causes Paul not to say, whatever it will be, the way God did it. He grieves over it. He's on the playing field. He has loved ones. He goes to synagogues. He sees so many of his fellow Jews rejecting the gospel, and he doesn't emotionally take it lightly. But he begins this great three chapters this way. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's how he starts. But Paul's grief and his anguish is mixed with trust. With trust that God knows what he's doing. The same man who wrote that 26 minutes later, whatever it was, when he dictated it, said this in verse 25 of chapter 11. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so what we have in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is Paul's overview of redemptive history which he received from the Lord. And as he began with his heart in anguish, he ultimately comes to the end of Romans 11 with glorious praise 
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? No one. Or who has given a gift to the Lord that He might be repaid for it? No one. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all to Him be glory forever and ever. And so, in Romans 9, 10, 11, Paul has three major sections. Three segments as he makes his logical moves. The first section is this. God never promised to save every individual Jew. Child of Abraham physically. Never promised it. It's not there. Brings him to a second segment. God is hardening the hearts of Jews for the purpose of saving Gentiles. The third segment. Because of the mercy God has shown upon the pagan nations and bringing them to faith in Jesus, God will therefore, in the end, show unprecedented mercy upon the Jews before he wraps it up. So let's go to it. First, as we turn to Romans 9, it doesn't come out of the blue. Paul, in these three chapters, is dealing with a major problem that chapters 1 to 8 have raised. 1 to 8 is the greatest unfolding and exposition of the gospel of Jesus that exists. Jew and Gentile are all under God's wrath as sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then God sends forth His Son to make propitiation for sin, to pour out His wrath on the substitute so that Jew or Gentile, whoever will believe, will be saved. And not only that, God has predestined all whom He will call. And everyone he calls, he will justify because they all come to faith. And everyone he justified, in the end, they'll make it. They will be glorified. And it brings them into this statement in chapter 8. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is nobody. He can't. And the point is this, believer. Gentile Roman Christian member of Sovereign Grace, you are secure. God is faithful. You cannot not be saved if you are born again. Oh, what security. That's a problem. Because then 
the voice has come to Paul's ears. But Paul, the vast majority of the Jews are rejecting Christ and dying in their sin. God promised that they would be saved by their deliverer, the son of David. Has God's word failed? That's the question. And Paul's answer is Romans 9 through 11. And so, his first step in the answer is no, God's word hasn't failed. You see, in the scripture, in the law, throughout the Hebrew text, here's the reality always only some of Abraham's physical descendants are true children of Abraham. Only some are true Israel. Look at verses. 4 to 5 of chapter 9. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from their race according to the flesh, is the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Yes. But then Paul lets his readers know that none of God's promises has failed. Because, actually, just, let's just let Paul tell us why he says it. Verses 6 through 9. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. You see what he's dealing with? Nope. Why not, Paul? Well, here's his answer. Read the Hebrew Scripture. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his physical offspring. But, what does the text in Genesis say? Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh. Because Abraham had a son named Ishmael. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, quote, remember, Ishmael's 13 years old. He's Abraham's seed, firstborn son, supposed to get all the inheritance. But Genesis says, about this time, next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So in Ishmael's 
rejection in favor of Isaac. The lesson is right there in the first book of the Bible for all subsequent history to learn from. In order to be children of God, it does not depend on any inherent advantage you have. There is no distinctive that any individual person has that would obligate God to show you mercy. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or black or white or raised a Roman Catholic or a Presbyterian or a Sovereign Grace Fellowship. There is no distinctive in you that dictates, I must therefore be an inheritor of the promise. Not even if you are Abraham's firstborn child, but only on what God does. In his sovereign grace. And then Paul goes on. Pick up in verse 10. And not only this example, but also when Rebecca, Abraham, Isaac, his son, he marries Rebecca. Rebecca has twins in her womb. And not only this, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of His call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, and Malachi the prophet. Jacob I loved. But Esau I hated. So why Jacob? Why not Esau? What's the answer? Jacob was better. No, we, that, that's gone. They're still in the womb. Neither one has done anything good or bad. So why Jacob and not Esau? He answers it right there in verse 11 with the purpose clause. So that, or in order that, God's purpose in election, His choosing, might remain, might continue, might be clear, might stand. And it is not arbitrary on God's part. He is doing it to clearly exclude all grounds for boasting in any person. And then Paul goes on to deal with the voices he hears now flying at him in response to what he just said. 
Those voices have been flying throughout the church world for 2,000 years. Because the voices say, Paul, okay, you, you can't be more clear. So if what you're saying about God's sovereignty is true, and God is unjust, and why do they say He's unjust? Why do we want to cry out and say He's unjust? Because here's our theology. Here is our radical high anthropology. It's unjust for God to choose people without regard to anything they do or deserve. And that offends us. If there's another answer, give it to I don't know what it would be. I think it's only just if God chooses based upon what we earned, deserve, period. And if he does it another way, I call it unjust. This is the argument that Paul runs into time and time and time again. So much so that when we get Romans, he, he plays both parts. So pick it up with the next verse, verse 14. Here it is. Well, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Okay, that's it. Is God unjust? Answer? No. By no means. Okay, why do you say that, Paul? <laughs> that's what that word for is. He's going to unpack his reason for saying it. And this is a weird argument. For, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on... Okay, let's just stop. Look, this is why it's a weird argument. Because when you make arguments to say, because of this, in other words, only... Well, I wish it were this way still, but it's not in Little League. Only one team wins a trophy. <laughs> okay, so... We will present the trophy, the trophy, there you go, there's the one thing, to whom? To the team that wins the championship. Okay, two, two distinct things, trophy and winning. That's how you argue. But he goes to the book of the law, and his argument is strange because they're not two distinct things, and it's purposeful. God's not unjust. Why? Because he says to Moses, I will have mercy on the fastest runners. I'll have mercy on all who are physically descended from Abraham. I'll have mercy on those who pick themselves up morally by their own bootstraps and show themselves worthy. He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then watch, Paul draws a conclusion from that. Therefore, in other words, or so therefore, so then, 
It depends. What does? God's mercy. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so Paul draws the conclusion again. And so he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens like Pharaoh whomever he wills. Whether we like it or not, it seems to be clear. And whether you've interpreted that correctly, well, you can just check yourself out. Because Paul thinks those who are, who, who are listening clearly to my clear language, he, he, he expects a response. And, and, it, and it's what he lays out next. And so if that's your response to that, then you know you're on the right track. You heard, you heard the apostle Paul clearly. He says, since you heard me clearly, you will say to me, Paul, then, well, then why does God still find fault? For according to you, Paul, who can resist his will? Here's Paul's answer to it. But who are you, O oh man, creature? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And Paul gets to the point. He's going to form it in this rhetorical question. But it is his theology that Jesus gave him. What if God, just imagine for a moment, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make Known his power, what if he has endured with much patience as a potter vessels of wrath which were prepared for destruction? Okay, stop. He doesn't stop there. Stop for a moment. There's a comma. That's not God's foundational goal, but it's a means to the greater goal. What if he has done this? Prepared vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, 
which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Sovereign grace, even us who believe. Okay. But all Paul goes deep down why his main point still remember is not all Israel is Israel. God's word hasn't failed. He never promised to save every single individual Jew, nor every single individual Gentile. He has not. And so that's his hope. He's not done. He will go all the way now, continuing to unfold that point in chapter 10 and in the first 10 verses of chapter 11. That's his first major section. Which brings us to his second major section. And that is this. The purpose of God sovereignly hardening the hearts of Israel as a whole, except for the remnant, the purpose of that so that they reject the Messiah, Jesus, is so that salvation in Christ then will go out to all the people groups and nations of the world, the Gentiles. Look at verse 11 of Romans 11. So I ask, did they, that's the Jews, did they stumble? Remember, the gospel, as Paul constantly says, the gospel to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. Bam, right on their face constantly. Did they stumble, meaning reject Christ, in order that they might fall? And that's it? Answer, no, that's not it. But rather, that through the Jews' trespass or rejection of Christ, salvation has come to the Gentiles. See, that means that, that the purpose of God in the stumbling, in His hardening of Israel's heart, the purpose is not the final abandonment of Israel the Jews as a whole. It's no. He says, no, 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 no. Again, let's just go through it. The idea that Paul's getting at, verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall and that's it? Answer, no. Yes, the stumbling in that many persons will be lost forever. And in judgment. And for generations. But Paul says, the final lostness and judgment on the people as a whole was not the ultimate purpose of the hardening. Then what was? What's the purpose of the hardening of the heart that causes the Jews to stumble? The second part of verse 11. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God's purpose for unbelief, for hardness of heart toward Jesus, of the vast majority of the Jews during this time, 
purpose is the salvation of many Gentiles. Now, I know that for many of us, and all of us has to struggle through it, that speaking about God's purposes in sin, in unbelief, in His hardening of the heart, that's difficult. So I just want to just keep, keep two pictures, biblical pictures in your mind then for a moment and see if they don't fit. Okay. In, in Genesis, right, you know the story of Joseph? <laughs> His brothers sinned against him wickedly. It was fortunate enough that he was even saved from them killing him. Throwing him in the pit, what are we going to do? And they decided, let's sell him off into slavery until dad, you know, he's dead. And that was wicked. And that was evil. And yet the whole point of that is the end of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Out of Joseph's mouth now is an old man and he is speaking the truth from God here to his brothers. As for you, my brothers, what you did to me, you meant for evil. Next line. But God meant it. What? The exact same thing that you did to me for good. Got to be able to fit that in your head to read the Bible. Or, or the second one, the cross of Jesus. He doesn't get on a cross without human wills. Rebelling against God. Sinning grievously. Railroading the only sinless, perfect human being. That's how he gets on the cross. And God did it. The early church prays corporately this way in Acts chapter 4. For truly in this city, God, there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed, but gathered together against Him both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay. Let's go back now. God has a sovereign purpose in the unbelief of the Jews. Yes. God is always doing more, though, than one thing. He is hardening. That's clear. But oh, so much more. Paul unveils the mystery that by means of the hardening of Israel's hearts and thus their stumbling and their sin and their trespass against the Savior, God is guiding human history in such a way that Gentiles are being saved. Now, if you look down to verse 28 to 30 of Romans 11, you can even see God's purposefulness even more clearly. As regards the gospel, they, 
the Jews, are enemies of God. For your sake, Gentiles. For your sake. But as regards election, they, the Jews, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So just as you, Gentiles, you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy. Why? Because of the Jews' disobedience. And that's what he said back in verse 11, right? Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they, too, the Jews, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, the rest of the world, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned or handed over all people, which means Jews and Gentiles. He's handed them, all of them over to disobedience. For a purpose, in order that he may have mercy on all, on Jews and on Gentiles. And so, the second segment of redemptive history that Paul lays out here is that Israel's hardening of heart against the gospel of Jesus brings salvation to the Gentiles. And so, the third segment. He goes on now to unveil this huge, glorious, redemptive mystery. That the Gentiles' salvation will ultimately bring salvation to Israel, to the Jews. In other words, God's purpose doesn't end with the salvation of the Gentiles through the disobedience and the rejection of Jesus by the Jews. It doesn't end there. Again, Paul asked a question. Was the purpose of Israel stumbling? Just their final rejection? No. The purpose was the salvation of the Gentiles. And then amazingly he adds in verse 11 of Romans 11. So as to make Israel jealous. That's purpose, built upon another purpose, built upon another purpose. The hardening of heart, the trespass of, of Israel, those things are designed to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And salvation to the Gentiles is designed to make Israel jealous. 
Why? So that that day will come when Israel will return. And they will lay hold of the Son of David. They will lay hold of the Messiah. They will lay hold of Jesus and become part in a massive way of the body of Christ Jesus. And if we think that, then, Israel coming in is the climax of God's design in redemptive history. You know, okay, salvation of the Gentiles, and then, still hasn't happened yet, the salvation in mass of Israel, of the Jews. If we think that's, he's not done yet. Verse 12 goes further. Now, if there, that's the Jews, trespass, rejection of Christ, if, if that means, in other words, resulted in what? The riches for the rest of the world, which it does in the gospel, saving so many Gentiles. And if Israel's failure, what, to receive the Messiah, if it means riches for the rest of the world, Gentiles, which it does, it's what he's been arguing, how much more will their full inclusion mean? God's purpose in the trespass of Israel is the salvation of the Gentiles. And His purpose for the salvation of the Gentiles is to make Israel jealous so that they will one day wake up to the greatness of Christ and embrace their Messiah. And then He adds the purpose of the salvation of Israel. That is, their full inclusion in Christ is something even greater. And he unfolds it right there in verse 15. For if the Jews, their rejection of Christ means, which it does, the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance of Jesus mean? but life from the dead. In other words, something follows the full number of the Gentiles during this period of the Gentiles. And that's the full inclusion of Israel coming to faith in Jesus. And then something follows that. And he calls it life from the dead. I think... What Paul means by that is that when the full number of Gentiles come in and then the full number of Israel comes in after God removes His hardening of heart, He is sovereign. And this will happen, as, as he says at the end of Romans, and thus all Israel will be saved. After that, will the Savior come back and raise the dead and usher in the consummated kingdom forever and ever, Jew and Gentile, into everlasting joy. So, how do you apply this? Here's my admonition on how to apply this. And don't ever let 
pragmatist steal this from you? Listen to what you've heard. That's how you play. Listen to it. Have ears to hear. Receive it. Let it humble you. Believe and be amazed at the God that the Apostle Paul unfolds to us. God is sovereign. He's sovereign even in the hardening of whole people groups if He so chooses. And His aim in the end of all of it is the unimaginable, unsearchable mercy of God in saving many. Is that enough for you, practically? Not one of us in this room deserves to be saved. But God is gathering for Himself a people through faith in Jesus Christ from all peoples and languages and tongues and skin colors and ethnicities and cultures throughout the centuries and throughout the world. And one day, one day, Mercy will triumph over Israel's hardness of heart to the truth of the gospel. And they will oh, join the Gentiles as a whole in seeing and delighting in and worshiping the Son of David, the King who bore their sin and conquered death. And so here's my plea to us in here. Even though, as we read, unfolded slowly, what God has given to us through the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11, even, even though this seems kind of weird, it seems like a very roundabout way, God, for you to show your mercy. And the way you want to eventually bring mercy to Israel is you hardened their heart, and now you're going to go to the rest of the world, and we're 2,000 years in. But one day, because of the mercy you showed to everybody but Israel, you're going to go get Israel. Even though that may seem very strange, not the way we would have done it. Here's my plea. Here's the take-home. Recognize we are not God. God knows what He's doing. God knows what kind of history must take place in order to reveal the fullness of His wisdom and His mercy against the backdrop of His justice, of His divine judgment, of His holiness, 
meted out in wrath. He knows there's only one perfect, possible world. And this is it. And God means for what He shows us in Scripture about His ways, He means for that to be the children's bread. He means for it to deepen our trust in Him. He means for us to be overwhelmed at how big and sovereign and God He is and we're not. So that we will remain So that we will be patient. So that by His grace we will remain faithful even when it looks as though everything in our life may be falling apart. Even right now in Western society and in America, we have been accelerating in a time of anti-Christ. That the culture that many of us have so loved that has been built upon biblical worldview is being viciously attacked. And we may be more and more pushed to the periphery. He means to unveil who He is so that we stand. That he, even in the midst of our culture now, has not lost one bit of sovereign control. And you and I, if we find ourselves loving Jesus, we should be amazed at his mercy. And we are to know everything for us who love God through Jesus Christ. Everything is working together for good. So is that you? Are you a lover of Jesus? If you are, we are called to revel in God's ways, not our own. We ought to see the beauty of our salvation in the context of the way God has actually done it. And thus rejoice with the Apostle Paul. As I quote his last words from these great three chapters. And may the last part be ringing in our hearts. For just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy because of the Jews' disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient 
in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned everybody to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all people groups. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been the Lord's counselor? Or who has given a gift to the Lord that the Lord should have to repay you? Nobody. Church, from Him and through Him and back to Him are all things that exist. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, Father, my deepest prayer is that you, by the words of Paul, break us, cause contriteness, repentance, to cause us to feel appropriately As Paul demonstrates to you, to you, be glory. May we continue to grow as little children. Crying out by the precious gift of your eternal Son. Abba, Father. Oh, Jesus, what a Savior. We love you. And your ways are great. Amen. Let us stand.